There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Lena Donahue. Alina is a human trafficking subject matter expert and survivor. She co-created the Shelley Stayer Shelter's 18-month human trafficking residential program, a nationally recognized residential program for adult female survivors of sexual human trafficking. She's been certified by the Florida Crime Prevention Training Institute through the Office of the Florida Attorney General. Alina was a mentor and teacher for Project Recovery, a program that helps inmates in Collier County overcome addiction and reintegrate back into society. In 2021, she made the Naples Illustrated Top 100 to Watch list for continuous achievements. In January 2023, Alina was appointed as a senior advisor to the National Trauma Education Policy Board. Alina Donahue, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. <laughs> no, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. Alina, your story is so shocking, in part because beginning with your upbringing, you didn't fit many of the characteristics of the girls or young women we think of as being pulled into sex trafficking. Yeah. You came from a stable, conservative family. I know it's mm -hmm. a long story, but we've got lots of time here. So please take us through your upbringing, how you met your trafficker, and those first days of being trafficked. Yeah, so I um, I am often referred to as your typical girl next door, which is very true. I mean, I grew up in a conservative Catholic home, um, you know, first generation, life was good, no issues at home, no type of you know, trauma, sexual trauma, abuse, anything like that. My parents were married for 40 years, very happy upbringing, um, good student, went to school, graduated. I mean, literally your girl next door, uh, you know, had friends, whatnot. Um, I always say that I think my biggest downfall was the fact that, you know, our my parents, you know, protected me and my sister so much and they shielded us from, you know, the reality of what's out there, the dangers and whatnot. And because of the lack of communication, because so many subjects were considered taboo, um, you know, we were very naive, especially myself. I was very naive. I just expected to have, you know, a happy life like my parents get married and all was going to be normal. You know, everything would just be fine. Um, so how did I get caught up in this? How did I become, you know, a, a victim of human trafficking? So I was in college. Um, here locally, um, where I live, and I was attending the FSW, uh, which is a great community college, um, now a state college. But I was, it was midterms, and I was studying like crazy. And, my, you know, my girlfriends were like, you know, let's just take a break from studying because we all studied a lot. Let's just take a break for studying from studying and let's just go out. Let's just go out. Let's have fun. And we'll get back to it, you know, the next morning. So we did. So we went out and that's where I met my boyfriend, you know, who ended up, you know, being my trafficker. And I always express and I always make it clear that when I reference him, I do use the word boyfriend because I literally thought he was my boyfriend. And I know that there are many victims out there who think, wait a minute, 
I'm not being trafficked because I don't have a trafficker because he's my boyfriend. So that's why I, you know, I use the word and I, and I use it often boyfriend because I thought we were in a relationship. So I met him. We had mutual friends. I felt it was safe to engage with him because we had mutual friends. Everyone knew who he was. And, you know, it was like, he was this cool guy and he showed interest in me who I I was just like, wow, (laughs) you know, this bad boy for say showed interest in me. And I was shocked. Um, So I went with it. We got to know each other and he was really cool down to earth, super sweet. Um, And we hit it off. And within, uh, you know, a few weeks, a couple of weeks, we started dating right off the bat. So everything was good. Um, It was like a typical relationship. You know, you start dating your boyfriend and girlfriend, all is well. Um, He was very sweet. And like I said, down to earth. Um, And again, I felt safe because we had mutual friends. So how did I get caught up into this? He was very persistent, um, my boyfriend. He was very persistent. He knew what to say. He was very persuasive. Um, and I guess all narcissists are, <laughs> you yeah. know. Um, but but yeah, he was very persuasive. And he insisted that we move in together. And mind you, I was living at home. There was no reason for me to move out of my parents' home, going to college. You know, everything was taken care of. But because I was naive... Um, and he sold me on this idea that this is what people in a relationship, you know, this is what people do. They move in together when they're boyfriend and girlfriend. And I was just like, maybe it is time for me to leave, you know, home. Um, so we did, we moved in together, mind you, everything was under my name when we moved in together. Um, so we moved in together and within a couple of weeks of moving in, he said, Hey, I saw this modeling ad online and I think you should apply. Keep in mind, I had no aspirations of being a model whatsoever. I mean, that was not within my realm of work. If anything, I wanted, you know, to work for the government. That's what I wanted to do. Um, But he introduced, you know, he showed me this ad and I laughed and I said, I have no aspirations of, you know, I don't want to be a model. This is not for me. Ha ha. You know, pretty funny. Um, and that's the first time that's the first time I saw him become aggressive. That is the first time that I saw a different side of him. Um, and he did not like the fact that I said no to him. And I remember clearly, and he said, you know, I've treated you so good. I've treated you like a queen utterly, and you're gonna say no to me. Um, and I was shocked because he had thrown the phone at me. Um, and that was the first time he became, violent and aggressive. So I really didn't know, you know, what to do or what to say. So the first thing that came to mind was I I just want to keep him calm. I want to go, I want to find where my boyfriend is. Who is this guy? Um, So I said, okay, okay, okay. Calm down, calm down. Let me look at it. Let me look at it. And by the time I started looking at the ad, he had already started dialing the number for that was listed on the job ad. Um, so I, he gives me the phone. I'm unprepared for it. He gives me the phone and I start talking to this guy and he walks me through what it's like to work for this agency, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, he's giving me all these details and I was just like, this just, I don't know, there was something about it that didn't feel right. But at that point, you know, I'm, I'm on the phone. So the guy said, you know, let's schedule an in-person interview. And I said, okay. Um, And when I hung up the phone, I remember it was as if I was dealing with a chameleon because my boyfriend had gone from being pissed off, disappointed, angry at me to now all of a sudden relaxed and calm and 
saying things like, see, that wasn't so bad. You know, all you had to do was do the phone call. And I was just shocked. I didn't know what to do, how to interpret it. I was just happy that he was nice again. It's very weird. Um, The day of the interview came and my boyfriend made it a point to drive me to the interview so that I don't know if he thought I wasn't going to go or that, you know, I was going to find a way out of it, but he made it a point to control the environment so that he drove me to the interview and I had no other choice but to do the interview. When I went in for the interview, um, again, it was for a modeling ad. Um, I went in for the interview and this guy greeted me and I was automatically scared and intimidated. Uh, I'm only five foot even. I'm very short. (laughs) I'm petite for say. Um, And this guy was probably like six, one, six, two. He looked like he looked like a biker, to be honest with you. He was just so big and um, intimidating, towering over me. And the first thing he said was, can I have your driver's license? So I started to calm myself down. And I said, this is legit. He's asking for your driver's license. Just calm down. I'm trying to, you know, calm myself down. He takes my driver's license. He makes some notes and he gives it back to me. And then he proceeds to tell me to take my clothes off. And I'm just dumbfounded. What do you mean? Take my clothes off. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, want to take my clothes off. Like, this is not like, I'm, I'm blurting everything out of my mouth. Anything that comes to mind is just coming out of my mouth. And he proceeds to tell me to, you know, shut up and do as you're told, you know, there's a million other girls that would want this position. Um, and you know, you're wasting my time if you're not going to do as I say. And I remember looking back and there were like locks on the door. So making a run for it was not an option, at least in that second. Um, and I did, as I was told, I took my clothes off. And then after I took my clothes off and he looked me up and down and said, okay, you're going to work just fine. Uh, he proceeded to tell me to lay down and that's when he raped me when he finished. Um, you know, another thing that I want to bring up before I move on is before he raped me and he told me to lay down, I just remember thinking, and trying to process that moment in my mind. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be a rape victim. So if I fight back, that in a sense means I'm a rape victim because of what you see on TV and stories and whatnot. So instead of fighting back, I just remember trying to create conversation, no matter how dumb it was, just trying to create, you know, any sort of obstacle to prevent him from doing what he was going to do. Did it work? No. But I share that because it's just crazy how the mind tries to process what's about to occur. Um, so once he finished raping me, raping me, he he raped me. And when he was done, he said, you're going to work. If you tell anyone what just happened, if you go to the police, I now have your driver's license information. I will kill you and your family. I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. At that point, he walked out and I just remember grabbing my clothes, getting dressed and making a run for it because I didn't know what was going to happen. When I went out and met my boyfriend in the car, he, he knew what had happened. He asked me and I didn't. He asked me, how did it go? And I didn't know how to reply because I was trying to process the fact that I had just been raped. And when he said what he, you know, he said the following to me was, you know, what just happened is work related. If it wasn't work related, then that means you cheated on me. Did you cheat on me? So now on top of trying to process the fact that I was just raped, I was just like, what? (laughs) I didn't know how to respond to that. 
So the only thing that came out of my mouth was, I didn't cheat on you. And he said, good. So you know that it's work-related. So the guy who raped me, ultimately, um, he trafficked me for two weeks in Southwest Florida. Um, and my boyfriend made sure that I showed up to work every single day. Um, so now, you know, looking back at it, I know that my boyfriend had something to do with it. He was in on it. So the guy that raped me, he trafficked me for two weeks. And after those two weeks, at that point, my boyfriend took over and he trafficked me for the following eight months. Um, I was trafficked throughout the state of Florida. And it was just, you know, a blur and a whirlwind. And it just, those eight months, so much happened. But I remember being trafficked in Naples, Fort Myers, Tampa, Orlando. Um, it, it was just like, boom, boom, boom. It was like constant circles going through these cities. How did I get out of it? Um, and I just want to say this because a lot of people will ask and, and have asked me, why did you leave? Why didn't you escape? Well, I'll tell you this. The one time that I did try to escape, he used to, we used to sleep in the same bed, but he would sleep with his arm on me so that if I even remotely moved, he felt it and he would wake up. So this particular day was during the day. He was like out of it. For some reason, he was probably on drugs or something. And I said, this is my chance to escape. And I remember removing his arm from my abdomen and, you know, tiptoeing to the door. Mind you, there's four locks on the door. By the time I got to the last lock, he noticed I was trying to leave and he grabbed my hair and yanked me back so hard. I think he yanked me back about five, 10 feet. He yanked me back so hard that there was no escaping at that point. And then I got a beating for it, uh, for trying to escape. So when that happened, it's safe to say I never tried to escape again. Because um, one thing that survivors don't talk about for whatever reason, whether, cause it's really personal and embarrassing, but not only do you get a beating, but you're forced to say things to them during a beating. That's just so humiliating. And one of them is like call referencing them as, you know, daddy. And it's like, as you're getting a beating and they're telling you that you have to call them a certain way, it's just, a, it's a humiliating and embarrassing. And then there's also sexual abuse that goes into it as well. So no, I did not try to escape again because I didn't want to experience that ever again. Um, so I was trafficked for those eight months. How did I get out of it? Um, I fell into a world like a criminal, you know, criminal activity. Um, you know, it's really forced criminality, but I was given ultimatums, you know, during the day, like you either work and you see this, you know, this many guys, or you go buy something of value with a credit card that I stole. And to me, when I'm in, you know, fight or flight survivor mode, it made the most sense to, you know, whatever caused me the less harm, go to a store and use the stolen credit card and, you know, buy something of value. That to me made more sense than, you know, being in a place waiting for 10 Johns. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen every time someone goes, you know, comes in through those doors. So I fell into a life of crime, unfortunately. But I truly, I truly believe that falling into the life of crime is how I was able to encounter law enforcement and um, ultimately ending up in jail is what saved me and what got me out of, you know, this trafficking world. Because once you're in, it's really hard to get out because the best way I can explain it being sucked into the trafficking world, it's like the everyday life, everyday people you know, go on. And it's like, you're stagnant in this bubble. No one sees you. 
you know, no one sees you and they're just going about their way. And at times you're right in front of them, but they don't see what's going on. They don't see it. So you feel stuck and lost. Um, but because I was arrested for those criminal charges that had nothing to do with my trafficking, that's how I was ultimately saved. So that's a glimpse of the backstory. And yeah, that's more than a glimpse. And I can't imagine how difficult and painful it must be for you to, to relive that every time. And so thank you for sharing that horrific story. How did your second trafficker and we can't call him your boyfriend anymore. I'm sorry. Yeah. How did he go about getting Johns to contact him? You know, he would, um, nowadays everything's done online and this was, you know, roughly 10, this was 10 years ago, but 10 years ago, everything could be done online. Um, there's different types of, um, websites where one can post ads for, you know, sexual encounters or escorting or prostitution or even massages. I mean, there's an abundance amount of uh, websites. For me, it was a well-known website. I can't say the name of it, but it was a well-known website that has since been taken down. Um, So that was where he primarily exploited me and, you know, advertised me. And it was thickening to see it's like it's like when you you know someone posts an ad like uh, puppies for sale and people call and call and call and call it's essentially the same thing every time I was posted with a new ad in a new city I mean the calls it was just at one point I think he had like four burner phones trying to keep up with the demand so it just gives you a glimpse I mean it's disgusting you mentioned a moment ago, you, you don't know what's going to happen when the doors open. Yes. How would you describe the Johns, you know, the, the men who are buying sex? Were they young, yeah. middle-aged, old, white collar, blue collar? You know, this is a great question. Um, and I would say it was a, it was a variety. Um, the majority of the Johns that I saw were definitely, you know, white collar affluent men, uh, like w- white men, um, older, probably 40s to 60s. That's the majority of the men that I saw. Um, But it really all depends within the trafficking world. And I know law enforcement can attest to this, but within the trafficking world, because so many traffickers are black and black men are known to steal girls from other pimps. um, My trafficker would post on the ads, like, you know, no black Johns allowed. Um, and he would do that so that other pimps couldn't, you know, cause they would portray themselves as Johns and then, you know, like kidnap the girl. And I, I saw that many, many times with girls, you know, it just, it happens. It, it just happened. It's a, the trafficking world, it's a horrific world. And what you think people are not capable of, they are capable of. Um, so yeah, this is something that I've just had a blind eye to for most of my life. And I mentioned to you when we spoke mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, you know, I had one of my guests on about a year and a half ago who was trafficked from the age of six months to age 16 and hearing stories like hers, like yours, that's something that has now become a very personal issue for me. Uh, mm-hmm. this is the fastest growing illegal industry. And unfortunately the word industry is used in human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may even be more than illegal drugs. If not, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having heroes and heroines like yourself out there telling your story, you know, the, like we said before, when we first spoke, 
you know, my show is used as a platform for the guest. So I want mm -hmm. you to be from the top of the mountain screaming as loud as you want, how bad and how awful and how horrific this industry is. And so again, I, I can't thank you enough uh, for being here today and sharing. And because we usually run with people who are very similar to us, I imagine your friends were good kids too. You know, we know Naples, yeah. Florida, as you mentioned, is it's a pretty nice neighborhood, nice town. Mm -hmm. But they had to be curious when you were being trafficked, weren't they? And did your friends ever wonder where'd she go or did they try and get in touch with you? When I was being trafficked, I tried my best, like on social media, to stay in touch with my friends. Um, but it's like he just kept me busy so much. Um, and at times he would prevent me from using social media for whatever reasons he would come up with. He had excuses for days. Um, he was literally a walking excuse book, excuse book. But there were times where my friends were like, where are you? We haven't seen you. What's going on? Um, and I would tell them the same thing that I would tell my family. Cause, um, I used to tell, I used to babysit before I went into college and it, I would babysit for some affluent family. So when I dropped out of college, the reality is I dropped out of college, but I remember telling my, my parents and my friends, oh no, I'm just babysitting for this affluent family and they travel so much. And who's going to question that in a town like Naples, Florida, where it's a thing, <laughs> you know, it, it's a real thing. Um, so that's what I, that's the excuse I would use. And whenever I would come back home, um, because my trafficker knew how good of a relationship I had with my parents and with my friends, he didn't want to raise any suspicions in his mind, even though he really was, but he would control the time that I would be with my family or with my friends. He would control that time. He would drop me off. He would pick me up. But at that point I was so brainwashed that if I had an hour to spend with my family, the entire hour, I was concerned about when is he coming back? I got to make sure I'm not late, uh, you know, walking to the car and just being on my P's and Q's, you know, even when he wasn't around, I was trying to show good behavior. I mean, that's how sickening it is. That's how, that's how much you're brainwashed, really. How do you think your strict conservative religious upbringing actually made you vulnerable to being drawn into trafficking? That's a great question. I, it made me vulnerable because I only saw the good in the world. Um, you know, I didn't, I was very naive and gullible, um, though I was smart, I was extremely book smart, right? But there's a difference between being book smart and smart and then being smart on the real world. And that was one downfall that was, you know, that was a downfall and a vulnerability that my trafficker took advantage of. He said, you are so book smart that I'm going to teach you everything there is about trafficking so that not only are you street smart, but you're book smart. Um, and at the time it didn't make sense, but I truly believe that I learned one, I learned something that I didn't want to learn, but two, I'm using it now for good so that I can help others be a step ahead of the game. Um, but being, you know, growing up in a conservative Catholic home, I had many vulnerabilities, you know, being naive and gullible, I, I would say are the, the top two. I remember, you know, we couldn't even talk about sex because that was taboo. Oh, you, you can't talk about sex. So in middle school, when kids were talking about sex, I didn't even know what that entailed. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, and I know times are different now, but, but yeah, I, I had no idea. So it was just being completely naive to the real world and what could potentially be out there. That's why I say communication is key. It is. Something that I find so frightening is that you said one night out at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. My oldest daughter is a sophomore in college 
And I think about, since you've said that one night out, mm-hmm. it's amazing to think that a single night and a random chance encounter changed everything in your life. We've been talking to Alina Donahue and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Women, Life, and Science is the open forum for dialogue, the sharing of experiences, and storytelling. Tune in to hear Cecilia Zapata-Harms inspire you with her stories of challenges she overcame. Women, Life, and Science, Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Alina Donahue. Alina is a human trafficking subject matter expert and survivor. In January of this year, she was appointed as a senior advisor to the National Trauma Education Policy Board. We've been talking about Alina's months being held by a sex trafficker. Alina, what are the red flags that young women, their friends, their family should look for to prevent someone from being drawn into sex trafficking? You know, you can, there's no MO for a trafficker. Like when I say MO, like there's no specific appearance. I mean, I think when it comes to traffickers, they are the best chameleons out there because they can fit in and blend in and no one will know. I would say what I say to girls that are in high school and girls that are in college are pay attention to things that don't feel right. Follow your gut. If he's asking you to be a part of something sexual that you don't feel comfortable with, that is a red flag. That's a form of grooming. If he's insisting on you to make a decision or for you to say yes to something that you don't feel comfortable on, that is a red flag. Um, 
traffickers, I would say, I would say 100% of traffickers of traffickers are narcissists. They have narcissistic behaviors. Um, They are egotistical. They see nothing wrong with what they do, what they say, how they think. They will always point the, you know, point the blame at someone but themselves. They will never be accountable or hold themselves accountable. Pay attention to the things that don't feel right. But I would say with a trafficker, he's going to groom his victim in a sexual way. So anything, if a conversation, if a question, if a sexual act is brought up that you don't feel comfortable with, those are signs to pay attention to because a trafficker is going to do anything and everything to make you feel comfortable with things that you're not comfortable with. They're going to, they're going to groom you in a sense to become the perfect, you know, price tag. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So pay attention to those things, especially girls in high school and in in college, because you're on your own for the first time. You know, I say, I say high school, but now it happens as young as high school. But when you're in college, you're on your own for the first time. You don't have a lot of experience. You're meeting guys. You've probably, you know, now you're like this beautiful young lady and, um, and, and trust, trust me when I say traffickers will read every person they come across and they will know exactly who will be the easiest to groom and to traffic. Um, it is something that it's a skill that I wish I didn't have. Um, but that's just the unfortunate reality of it. When did you finally share your story with friends and family? And when did you go public with your story? You know, I went public with my story the same time that I shared my story with uh, friends and family. It was like, I'm, you know, this is when I'm going public with it. Uh, And I went public with my story actually last year. So in 2022. Uh, So February 4th, 2022, I went public with my story. I shared my story for the first time um, with the organization that just helped me with so much, overcome so many things. Um, But I shared my story at the Mending Broken Hearts luncheon for the first time. And I remember I was like, okay, it's my first time. And then I was like, whoa, there's 750 people in that audience. (laughs) Um, But I remember sharing my story in third person because everyone knew I was this professional, this expert created a program. No one saw it coming. So I remember at the end, you know, I said, uh, you know, something to the effects of uh, my name is Alina Donahue and I am Sarah, because the whole time I was talking in context, like I was talking and saying, Sarah, 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 and everyone was shocked. They, they didn't see it coming. Um, but last year is the first time I shared my story. And when I shared it public, that's when I shared it with friends and I just went for it, you know, for 10 years, I decided I wasn't going to share my story because I, I dealt with so much embarrassment and self guilt. And I was just, my whole thing was, what will people say? Um, and then another thing is, you know, my biggest hero was my father and I just couldn't bear sharing my story with him alive because I didn't want to, you know, bring him any heartache. Um, so I remember he passed away in 2020 from cancer And then it took another year for me to decide whether or not I was going to go public with my story. And then when I did, it felt right. I no longer cared. What will people think of me? I no longer cared. You know, what are people going to say? If anything, I feel like by sharing my story, it's made me stronger and it's given others hope. You have no idea. And every time I share my story, 
there's always one person, always, it never fails. There's always one person that comes up to me and says, you know, I was a victim of sexual abuse. I was a victim of this. I was a victim of that. And though they may never share their story, they didn't feel alone, you know, so that it just uh, inspires me to continue to share my story. So you sat on that story for 10 years. For 10 years, 10 years. What does that do to you physically, mentally, emotionally? I I just can't imagine, you know, I'll call the secret flack of body order a story Mm -hmm. as big as that. It it literally changed the trajectory of your life. What's that do to you? It takes a toll on you. It does. It takes a toll on you because I remember for the, before I started therapy, so I was five years into being out of the trafficking before I even started therapy because I didn't think anything was wrong. I just thought I was in a really messed up relationship. And then one day I met my men, my mentor, who is the CEO of the organization, the Shelter for Abuse Women and Children. And I met her out of chance and I had no idea who she was. And I remember sharing my story with her privately for the first time. And she said, you're a survivor, a victim of human trafficking. And I said, I'm not a survivor because I'm not a victim. Um, and that's, you know, it took a few weeks and months after that, but I started realizing, wait a minute, I was a victim of human trafficking because, you know, being forced to move from one place to another and to have sex with these men, that's not normal. That, that's not normal. Um, but, but yeah, for 10 years, it took a toll um, because for the first five years, up until I started therapy, I had the same reoccurring nightmare every single night for five years. That is what the brain will do to you. I mean, the effects of a traumatic incident will just take a toll on you mentally and and physically too. Um, But I dealt with nightmares, anxiety, which, you know, I think is an everlasting thing. I still struggle with anxiety every now and then. It's much more controllable now than it was then. But I used to get panic attacks and I just didn't understand why. If everything was going good, you know, if I was away from him, I was away from that. I got a good job, all this stuff. Um, And then I started therapy and that's where I understood the effects of a traumatic event. I did a special type of therapy called TIR, which is traumatic incident reduction, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And it's an intensive type of therapy, um, but it's what helped me get through. Um, But it it takes a toll on you. It does for 10 years. And then the self-doubt, the I'm not going to share my story or I'm not going to share anything that happened to me because it's embarrassing or people will think I'm this person that I'm not. Um, it, it does take a toll on you. It really does. A moment ago, you talked about the shift or, or the mindset of victim to survivor. Mm-hmm. But there's another transition that fascinates me. You touched on this earlier. You shifted from being trafficked into something you call forced criminality. Mm-hmm. What is forced criminality and how did it involve you? You know, forced criminality is when a person, and this, in my case, it was myself a victim, a person is forced to commit other unrelated to trafficking, sexual, or anything, you know, prostitution, anything like that. You're forced to commit to commit criminal acts, right? Um, you're forced to commit commit these criminal acts in hopes of not being trafficked. So for me, it was like. I fell into a life of crime. All of a sudden, I find myself at stores using fake credit cards that don't belong to me because it's better than having sex with an undisclosed amount of men. Um, so that's what forced criminality is. It's all, it's 
utterly when in a sense, it's when you're forced to do something because you don't want to be forced to do something else. Um, for me, it was, you know, I fell into this life of crime. I was, I wasn't a criminal, you know, for the first, I don't know how many months I, you know, I was, I was trafficked. I was forced to have to see these Johns, to see these men and to meet their sexual needs. And then I, you know, I was forced to commit all of these criminal acts, these, you know, these criminal activities uh, because I didn't want to be forced to see these men. So it's like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. And then I think that what makes it worse is that these traffickers mess with you so much. So there were days where I would, you know, commit these crimes and, you know, use a stolen credit card and buy all these things of value. And then my trafficker would say, thanks, but you're still going to work. So it was just horrible. I mean, every aspect of it is horrible, really. So, so I fell into this life of crime because I, I, I thought it was better than knowing what was coming in through those doors. I can't imagine how many horrible moments you had during that eight months of being trafficked. Mm-hmm. What was the most terrifying point for you? Um, I think the beating, the, the beatings were the worst. And I would say those were the worst. Um, you know, that is definitely the most terrifying because it came from my trafficker who in a sense, it's like this person that I'm with 24 seven, but on top of that, it was, you know, seeing these Johns meeting their sexual desires and the fact that no one was seeing my struggle no one was seeing the the sadness the the lost look in my face you know so if i i wouldn't you know rate them from one to three but i would say the top three would definitely be the physical um the the physical abuse the sexual abuse and then you know just being lost you know that i just felt so lost for eight months i felt like i had no way out so definitely the physical and the sexual abuse. And yeah, there's a lot more to it, but those are the ones that automatically come to mind for sure. And I know you said you were trafficked throughout South Florida, uh, but a big focus on Naples, which is your hometown and where you still are. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see a John after the fact? You know, um, I remember someone asked me that and I don't remember who it was, but ever since I've, I've been trafficked and it's been, you know, 10 years, I think 11 coming up, but I've only seen two. And now, you know, I don't know who they are, what their names are, but I remember seeing two after the fact and they were like at a well-known event. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, cause I knew that the men that were coming to see me were like affluent, you know, white collar men. But when you see them in a setting where everyone is just getting along, it's like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, Uh, it's shocking. So yeah, I've only seen two. And are you surprised that you and your trafficker were never caught up in a prostitution ring? Shocked. Absolutely shocked that we were never, you know, I'm shocked that we were never caught in a prostitution ring or in a sting or anything like that. But then again, my trafficker was so paranoid um, and it could have been the effects of drugs, but he was so paranoid that if he felt, if he even felt something was wrong, he would switch locations right away, switch locations right away. No questions, nothing. He would just do it. So I was secretly hoping that I would because I it could be you know a way out, um, 
but yeah, but your mentality as a, you know, when you're in it as a victim, it's just, yeah, it's different. You mentioned earlier about prison time. Is jail the only way to escape? For me, it was. Um, is jail the only way to escape? <laughs> I want to say, I hope not. But that's the only way that I know personally will work. I don't know what else could work. Because again, the mentality of a victim that's being trafficked, you know, you see all these people that are like, we're going to save them, we're going to rescue them. And if you ask any law enforcement officer, there's no such thing because they're going to tell you to F off <laughs> because there's nothing wrong. Um, so I know that jail can be, you know, being incarcerated can be a way out because think about what's the one thing that you have when you're incarcerated time. <laughs> so you have time to think about, was this normal? What I went through, you know, and for me, it was a year I was incarcerated for a year. I had a lot of time to think about things. I think it took from, I think on the fourth month is when I started realizing this is not where I want my life to be. This is, this isn't what I want. This is not normal. What happened to me is not okay. Um, but I know that jail can be, you know, being incarcerated could be a strong, um, a, a strong, I guess, way for, for victims to get out. Um, there are organizations and I mean, I've created, you know, a, a successful residential program. Um, but it's like the show is scared straight. I mean, you have to really, you know, bring in a component where they are, you know, they don't want to go back to the trafficking, but you have to show them that what they could potentially lead to, whether it's death or, or incarceration is worse. Um, so I hope I'm explaining myself correctly, no, but for absolutely. me, I, yeah, I, I know for me personally, being incarcerated helped and I know it can help others, but the problem is the system. <laughs> the problem is the criminal justice system needs, you know, it needs reform and it needs help. And if we keep releasing these girls, these victims back into society because they were arrested, did 30 days and can be released, 30 days is nothing. <laughs> And, and any, you know, anyone in rehabilitation, um, you know, or that uh, struggles with addiction can attest to that 30 days is nothing. So you're in prison for a year, you get mm -hmm. out, now you're a felon. Obviously, having a criminal record makes it very difficult for somebody to get a job. And sometimes mm -hmm. it often forces them right back into crime. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you were four months out and realized that wasn't the life you wanted. What happened to you at that point in that four months out? So, um, well, I'm sorry. I meant to say I was four months into jail and that's when I realized it took me four got months it. being incarcerated. Yeah. But when I got out, I remember being like desperately wanting to go back to who I was prior to meeting my trafficker. And then it hit me that that was never going to happen because all of a sudden I had this knowledge, this street knowledge that I did not ever think would take you know, make a difference, but it did. Um, so, and then being a felon doesn't help because on that, you know, on any application, once you mark that you're a felon, let's face it, we talk about, you know, reducing recidivism rates and we talk about helping people and offering second chances, but not everyone's on board. So I noticed that when I was honest and would tell people that I was a felon, 
doors would shut in my face. No one wanted to give me a chance. So I started, I had to be strategical and say, okay, where am I going to apply? apply? What are the chances of them doing a background check? Is it a company that can afford a background check? I mean, here I am asking myself all of these questions just so I could get a job. Um, and I remember serving. Everyone in jail would talk about, be a server. You could be a server. They're not going to ask if you're a felon there. So I did just that. I started serving. But then I realized I don't want to be a server forever. So how can I move up within a company without telling them that I'm a felon? Because any chance that I got prior, didn't it backfired on me. So I, I clearly, I don't look like the stereotypical felon. So I made sure to dress a certain way to appear, you know, to always, if somebody was doing good, it didn't matter if it was taken out the trash. I took out the trash twice as good. <laughs> I did everything impeccably. I did everything to perfection because even though n- those people didn't know I was a felon in the back of my mind, I thought that they were going to find out at any moment. So I thought that by being a hard worker, um, that it would work to my benefit. And, um, but it's still, I mean, it's hard being a felon. I got very lucky with my expungement, you know, very lucky, but it's hard. And I feel for those that are out there with felonies, um, aside from, you know, very aggressive crimes, like murder or, you know, or, you know, sex, child sex abusers or anything like that. But I feel for those that uh, have never received second chances or, you know, it's just hard out there for felons. It's really, really hard. You just mentioned your expungement. Mm -hmm. You became the first person in the state of Florida to receive full expungement of your criminal record under a statute to help survivors of sex trafficking. How did that work? And how many others have been able to use that statute just like you did? I don't know how many others have used the statute. I'm hoping more, but there's a statute within Florida state law that says that if you can prove that you are a victim of human trafficking um, while you committed the crimes. So if you committed certain crimes during your trafficking time period, and you can prove that you are a victim of human trafficking, then you are eligible for expungement. I don't know who, how many have used it after me. I hope more, um, but I know that I was the first one. And I remember in the court, when we went to court, the judge, she had to do additional research because she's like, no one's made a ruling on this law before. So she didn't know which way to rule. So she had to do, she, she did her, her due diligence and it took her a few days. A, a decision wasn't reached for a few days because she said, I have to do my due diligence. This this statute, this law has never been used before. Um, and I still remember when we were in the courtroom, the prosecutor was, you know, God bless her soul. <laughs> but the prosecutor was just like, how do we know she's not going to go back to doing these things? And I was just like, it's been eight years. <laughs> Why would I want to go back to do these things? You know, Um uh, but yeah, uh, it happened the same day I was convicted of all of my charges was the same day that I got full expungement for the exact same charges. And there were nine in total. Um, I know that people I've heard other survivors ask, you know, um, I only accumulated one charge during my trafficking, but I have 10 other charges. The statute is the charges accumulated during your trafficking period. So if you get charges after you were trafficked or before you were trafficked, those are not eligible um, because I 
didn't live a life of crime before I met my trafficker. And even after, you know, it, it worked out for me. Um, but I say to those that are survivors and who have accumulated trafficking charge, who have accumulated charges during their trafficking period, you know, say something and you might be able to use this statue. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I'll never forget that day in the courtroom. They didn't know which way to rule because it hadn't been used yet. And that just shows the seriousness and the sad state of affairs in terms of how big trafficking is now, if there's an actual statute focused mm-hmm. on crimes committed during your trafficking period, which I can't even believe that's a phrase itself as well. Mm-hmm. Were either of your traffickers ever charged or caught? So um, my second trafficker, who was my boyfriend, is deceased. I know he continued exploiting victims after me because uh, I made it a point to stay far, far away. Um, and then my first trafficker, I know for a fact, was uh, charged by the attorney general of Florida for what he, it wasn't for me, I wasn't related to that case, but it was the same scheme that he did to me, he he did to other victims. And I know out of the dozens of victims, only one came forward. And that's how they were able to charge him for human, tra- he was actually charged for human trafficking. Um, but I was not a victim in that case because again, he disappeared. He trafficked me for two weeks and I never saw him again. Um, but yes, the first one did get uh, charged with human trafficking and the second one was charged with related crimes, but not actual human trafficking. And then he died. We have just a few minutes left. Mm-hmm. What is your source or your sources of strength? Oh gosh. Um, uh, hope. <laughs> That's one thing I will never let go of hope. Um, you know, just, I, I'm still, you know, religious and I believe that everything happens for a reason. And, uh, I would say that's my biggest strength having hope. And then I would say another strength is just, just wanting to do good and share my story to, you know, help others really. Alina Donahue, thank you so much for being with us today. You're a true, true inspiration. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Thank you. No, thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.